0: Hi everyone! Hello! (laughs) Today Bo and I have another NeuroBite for you where we discuss several topics in one episode instead of going super deep into one topic. I'm Ian McLaughlin, a PhD student in Neuroscience at the University of Pennsylvania, and Bo puts up talking about things with me to make things a little easier to listen to. (laughs) So um, a while ago, I covered two topics in a live stream that I thought were cool enough to be included uh, over here on the podcast. And so the first was a study that showed what appeared to be significant correlations between people who score high on the IQ test and a predisposition to psychiatric and physiological illnesses. And then there was a study that came out towards the end of last year that suggested that at least some of what causes dyslexia may be due to a very specific difference in the eyes of people with dyslexia rather than a kind of structural difference um, in in the brain alone. All right, so so let's get into the first one. Uh, This was a collaboration between multiple institutions, and at least some of the work was done where I went to college, actually, and my college advisor is the last author of the paper, which kind of means that he was the primary investigator who oversees the project. So so that's kind of exciting. Uh, He was actually one of my first neuroscience professors. Uh, He taught me neuropharmacology.
1: Neuropharmacology, huh? I think that you said that neuropharmacology was kind of like your gateway into neuroscience. So he was your first neuroscience professor, I mean, do we all have him to blame for this?
0: (laughs) Uh, No, he, he wasn't the first. But he's definitely an awesome professor, and um, he made neuroscience seem like something I could actually get into after I met him. His name is Thomas Borowski, and he's a really excellent professor. Um, Just as as an aside, uh, when I was looking into this paper and making sure he was the Thomas Borowski from the paper, I looked at his uh, profile page on that um, Rate My Professors website and he has a pretty stellar rating, which he deserves. But what was pretty funny was uh, that one of the comments is quote, extremely enthusiastic, which makes the class much more interesting. Once I got used to the way he talked, it didn't bother me, end quote. And so the comment is is from 2007, so which is you know around the time that I was taking his neuropharmacology class. Uh, but what's funny is that he has like a bit of a Canadian accent. I mean, it, it's not like an accent out of the Trailer Park Boys or anything like that. But um, but it's noticeable, you know, if you're familiar with the Canadian accent.
1: Is he Canadian, eh?
0: <laughs> All right. Well, I mean, at, at least I'm pretty sure he is. I mean, it'd be pretty funny if, if he wasn't and I thought he was, but... Um, But uh, I know he went to graduate school in Canada, Saskatchewan, um, I think. Uh, And and there's this other comment that brought me right back to sunny Southern California, also posted around the time when I was a student there. And so it goes like this, quote, Borowski is tight. Class is interesting. He tells you exactly what you need to know for each exam. He does say essentially and effectively a lot, but that's just because he is essentially a flippin' gangsta, effectively. I think one time he worked in the E words like 47 times in one sentence. It was a long sentence, possibly a run-on, end quote. (laughs) And I'll admit, you know, Borowski left his mark on me beyond just compelling me to major in and pursue science. I definitely use the words effectively and essentially quite a bit uh, when I'm writing for science. And um, our flippin' gangsta Rate My Professor student uh, missed another crucial one, uh, a crucial Borowskiism, which is characterized by...
1: Okay, so what was the paper that Boroski was doing?
0: <laughs> All right. Yes. Uh, so this was work that was done by a collaboration between multiple institutions, as, as I said before. And they essentially argued that just as highly intelligent individuals have a remarkable capacity for seeing and internalizing significant knowledge, applying that knowledge in uh, future behaviors, conceiving of possibilities and confronting challenges. High intelligence can also appear to be a risk factor for affective disorders like depression or anxiety disorders, ADHD, autism spectrum disorders, and there are even increased instances of diseases that are related to the immune system like asthma, food allergies, um, and autoimmune disorders. And, and so it's kind of hard to describe a paper's figures without actually being able to point at it, but but we can do our best. So it's basically a bar graph with several categories along the x-axis, or, or the flat part of the graph. The categories are types of psychiatric diagnoses or physical conditions, things like mood or anxiety disorders, ADHD, autism spectrum disorders, food allergies, environmental allergies, asthma, and autoimmune diseases, Right, like we said before.
1: A pretty broad set of conditions, and I'm guessing... Apart from the main purpose of the graph, a kind of secondary thing that hits you is the fact that we don't usually characterize anxiety disorders in the same buckets, allergies, right?
0: Yeah, exactly. That's part of why this study made such a splash. But on top of that, there are three bars for each of those conditions. So, you know, the three bars are the national average of people who are diagnosed with a given condition, then people who score high on the IQ test who've been diagnosed with the various conditions, and then, finally, a group of people who have high intelligence that are either diagnosed with these conditions or they suspect that they suffer from one of these conditions.
1: So that last group basically includes everyone from the middle group, the group of high IQ people, but then adds people who say that they suspect they have the condition but haven't necessarily been diagnosed.
0: Right, and and so if you compare those three groups of people according to the various conditions that are included, for every one of those conditions, mood disorders, ADHD, allergies, and, and so on, a higher percentage of people who'd score high on their IQ test were diagnosed with the various conditions or are suspected that they ought to be diagnosed compared to the national average.
1: So does that mean that the smarter you are, the more likely you are to be diagnosed with one of these conditions?
0: Well, past research has shown that high intelligence can appear to be a risk factor for psychiatric conditions. So for example, there was a study that was headed up by James McCabe in the British Journal of Psychiatry that showed that achieving a grade of an A was associated with an increased risk for bipolar disorder. The data suggested that this was a stronger correlation among students of the humanities, but science students also exhibited this correlation. And there are other similar types of studies. You know, so, so the claim that there might be some relationship between high intelligence scores and psychiatric conditions isn't earth-shattering. But the inclusion of more physiological conditions is interesting, and it leads them to make a kind of model that they call the hyperbrain-hyperbody model.
1: Hyper brain, hyper body.
0: Right, right. So the the crux of it is that they suggest that intellectual overexcitability is associated with high IQ scores, which can then lead to things like rumination, worrying, intense curiosity, and, and so on, which can then lead to things like bipolar disorder, depression, ADHD, OCD, Right, and, and then, when exposed to any of a variety of environmental triggers, similar overexcitability at the level of physiology manifests in overly high levels of things like stress and immune system activation, some of which you might find familiar.
1: So, in other words, it seems that ignorance really is bliss.
0: Well, I, I don't know if I'd go that far <laughs> based on this study, but cortisol, for example, is a classic stress-related hormone that's been shown to be elevated. But there's also elevated levels of proteins called cytokines, which are a wide variety of proteins that tend to be associated with the immune system, things with names like interferons, interleukins, and lymphokines, all of which are associated with activation and attraction of immune system
1: cells. So basically, a bunch of proteins that get active when your immune system has a job to do.
0: Yeah, and in these folks with high IQ scores, higher levels of these proteins were detected, and and the levels were were higher than what would occur in, in you or me.
1: Hey, speak for yourself.
0: Right, so assuming that you and I have pretty average IQ scores. So this then causes things like food allergies, autoimmune diseases, chronic inflammation, and so on.
1: Well, that's interesting.
0: Yeah, I mean, it's a pretty intriguing model, and they provide a bit of a literature review as a foundation for this proposed model. They haven't, though, and it's always important to note, they haven't identified any causative mechanism here they haven't discovered what's causing this correlation or if the correlation is actually a byproduct of something else
1: so what else could cause this kind of correlation
0: i mean it's it's frankly it's pretty hard to think of one but but one potential thing that could do it and i'm you know totally speculating is that perhaps people who take IQ tests tend to be more likely to see physicians for their various ailments, just in general. Maybe because they are better able to afford the healthcare, right? Or their family is just more sensitive to potential medical issues. And so what you're seeing isn't a correlation between intelligence and these various conditions, but rather a correlation between the likelihood that someone is to take an IQ test and the likelihood of seeing a physician about something that isn't necessarily threatening your life, but just causes your quality of life to suffer.
1: Right. It would have been interesting to see if they included a group of people who get an average score on the IQ test who are officially diagnosed along with people who have self-diagnosed. Of course, it's you know going to end up being higher than the national average, but maybe you could compensate for that.
0: Yeah, that's kind of a problem with the categories here. I mean, if you think about what the national average is, it includes literally everybody, right? So people with high IQs, people with low IQs, and people with average IQs. So it would have been cool if they included a group of people who achieve average IQ scores because then these diagnosis numbers would be more informative in this comparison and then of course there's a the concern of, of using the iq test as a measure of intelligence just in general within neuroscience and psychology is far more accepted as a, a method to quantify intelligence than outside of these disciplines and that's really a topic for another day but i suspect there are some folks who'd be pretty upset with the assumption that the iq test is accurately measuring intelligence but stipulating all those limitations some of which the researchers themselves do in the paper it's still an interesting finding, and it'll be interesting to see if there are biochemical mechanisms that are involved in both high levels of intelligence as well as psychological and physiological illnesses.
1: All right, so what's the next topic? Dyslexia? <laughs>
0: <laughs> That's right. <laughs> so um, so this is a paper that came out towards the end of last year that found a very interesting feature in the eyes of people who have dyslexia. This was very surprising to me given what we typically associate with symmetry and asymmetry in nature. What
1: do you mean? Like that it's rare that asymmetry exists in nature or or that we tend to find asymmetry unpleasant.
0: Right, I mean, I'm I'm not really referring to any specific research there, but just generally when I think about human anatomy, and particularly neurophysiology, there's very frequently a symmetrical layout to many parts of the nervous system. You know, particularly the well-known parts, places like the hippocampus or the amygdala, and I don't know what other parts of the brain people tend to be familiar with, you know, the uh, the prefrontal cortex, I guess.
1: Sure, okay, got it. So most parts of the brain are symmetrical.
0: I mean, I'm tempted to say yes, but, you know, I haven't technically learned that specific factoid about the brain. Uh, and given that there are definitely examples where the brain isn't actually symmetrical, I wouldn't want to be too broad with that claim. So even, you know, the circuit that I study, the medial habenula interpeduncular nucleus axis, it's asymmetrical. And honestly, my bet is that if you get a microscopic enough picture of the brain Regions that tend to be symmetrical are probably at least somewhat asymmetrical, right, at that microscopic level. But anyways, there's a sort of broadly bilateral layout to the human body.
1: All right, so you have, you know, two arms and legs, two ears, two lungs, two kidneys.
0: Right, and importantly, two eyes. And so it's sort of intuitive that, given our bilateral eyes, that they'd be laid out in a symmetrical way. And, you know, at a large-scale level, at a gross anatomical level, as we say in the biz, That's true, two retinas, two pupils, two scleras, two irises, and so on, right? But when you get down to a more microscopic level, that symmetry appears to break down. And that breakdown is important to how we see the world and interpret shapes in our environment.
1: Okay, so let's get into this then. What does this have to do with dyslexia?
0: Right. So when I was learning about dyslexia in college and and then later, you know, just a few years ago in graduate school, the main theories I'd come across examined the differences in the ways that people with dyslexia interpret symbols and characters by focusing on the brain. Specifically, regions of the brain called association cortices that exist at the junctions between regions of the brain that process things like vision, and other sensory systems like navigation and our sense of space. Um, this group, though, found an interesting quirk in the eyes of people with dyslexia.
1: So the effect is due to a difference in their eyes rather than their brain.
0: Yeah, well at least partly. And, and I've always found the eyes to be super cool. In, in another life I might have become a photographer of the eyes and in fact my cousin did just that in an optometrist office at least for a while before she started working in emergency rooms. Anyways, to, to make a long story short, our ability to see colors is derived from a combination of three types of cells on our retina in our eyes. These three types of cells are called cone cells because they're shaped kind of like cones. And one, of, one kind of them is stimulated by the color red, one for blue and then one for green. So three types of cone cells that correspond to red, green, and blue.
1: So that's kind of like how color screens make color, right? Like tiny little rectangles that turn green, red, blues, you know, depending on the image that the, you know, screen is projecting. And since they're so small, we can't really see that they're actually composed of tiny little dots.
0: Yeah, that's exactly right. And, you know, it's kind of funny. It reminds me of a kind of art called pointillism. And so there's this painting that probably everyone would recognize by one of my favorite artists uh, named Georges Seurat. Um, And the painting is called A Sunday Afternoon on the Island of La Grande Jatte. Um, it's one of the most famous pointless paintings. And and it's basically just a bunch of people lounging on a green shore with parasols. And, you know, there's some dogs running around, people having conversations, some sailboats in the distance, some trees. And, you know, there are areas in the painting that are very brightly sunny, as well as others that are shaded by what you might assume are are trees. And so anyways, there's this quote by Seurat, um, which is, why he always comes to mind when I think about vision, or, or really our sensory systems in general, as well as the relationships between science and art, which is part of the reason why I love his work. So it goes like this quote: "Some say they see poetry in my paintings. I see only science." End quote. So in that quote, he's referring to an effort of his to develop techniques that would make his paintings appear more luminous and bright. And so, as you know, oh, my favorite style of art is impressionism.
1: Yeah, me too.
0: Right, and and some people consider Seurat to be an Impressionist, and and I'm no scholar of art or or art history, but my layman's understanding is that he sort of initiated an evolution of Impressionism, ushering in styles called Neo-Impressionism or Post-Impressionism. He was explicitly interested in breaking down how we see color rather than trying to mix various colors on a palette to achieve the perfect paint. So, you know, particularly since painters are, are really working with chemicals that respond to light rather than just mixing pure color. And so as a result, you can get reactions between paints that result in something that isn't quite what they were hoping to achieve. And so Seurat, instead of blending two colors to try and get what we'd expect would be the product of that mixture of paints, he'd experiment with putting two dots of the colors right next to each other, making something um, called an optic mixture. And this was a departure from what his impressionist predecessors were doing. Though I've heard some people argue that this was a more effective realization of the ultimate goal of some Impressionists, which was to capture true natural outdoor light. So it's the kind of painting um, that I feel like you can actually look at for a while, taking in how it is that he achieved the look of a hand or the curve of a person's torso with a mixture of a crazy number of different little dots of different colors.
1: I mean, it's kind of cool that it turned out that technology would end up using pointillism to make the screen displays that we all use every day.
0: Yeah, I mean, exactly. I, I just find that super fascinating. And so anyways, how does this relate to our dyslexia paper? Well, we have these three cone receptors, right, that are sensitive to red, green, and blue, and they aren't uniformly distributed across the whole retina. There are specific parts of a retina where there are especially high numbers of these cone cells.
1: So some Areas of our retinas have more cone cells than others?
0: That's right, yeah. So, so picture a bullseye, and this bullseye is where our sight is the clearest in our vis- uh, field of vision. And it's basically the part of the eye that you point towards, whatever you're focusing on, um, because it has so many of these cone cells. And so, for example, when you're playing something like darts, you're literally pointing the bullseye of your eyeball towards the bullseye of the target. Well, there's something special about a small part of this bullseye, of the human eye, right? In particular, the cones that are sensitive to the color blue are absent from a very particular part of that bullseye within our eye. Whereas green and red cones are very dense in that area.
1: So within that super dense area that's supposed to be full of cone cells, there's actually a part of it that doesn't have any of the cone cells that are sensitive to the color blue?
0: That's right. And so in those of us who don't have dyslexia, there's a difference in the shape of that area. So instead of being nice, perfect circles, they're slightly differently shaped. And so in other words, there's an asymmetry between our eyes. And this is part of the reason that we have a dominant eye.
1: And can you explain what you mean by dominant? Like how does it dominate the other eye? Is the other eye submissive?
0: (laughs) Well, I I mean, so if you don't know your dominant eye, you can do the following. So point your finger at an object in the distance and keep pointing at the same thing, right? A very specific object in the distance. Then close or cover one of your eyes. If you're still pointing at that object, then you found your dominant eye. If you're not pointing at it, then your other eye is the dominant one.
1: Okay, so trying it now and it looks like my dominant eye is my right eye.
0: Yeah, mine is too.
1: So is that surprising at all? I mean, given that you write with your left hand? Honestly, I'm not
0: sure. I'm not sure what the relationships are between like fine motor control and eye dominance, but you know, it's an interesting thought. Um, Anyways, part of the reason for this is because this little bullseye area of our eyes isn't exactly the same shape in both eyes, but it turns out that this doesn't seem to be the case in the eyes of people with dyslexia. Theirs are largely symmetrical. And partly as a result of this, they often don't have a dominant eye. And some very interesting things can happen when looking at things in the environment that are fairly small and precisely defined in this case.
1: Small and precisely defined. So I assume this is where dyslexia comes into play. Things like letters and numbers are pretty small and precisely defined.
0: That's exactly right. So what happens for some folks with dyslexia is that almost immediately after looking at a letter or number, in some cases, a mirror image will occur. And the paper did a cool job of providing an example of what this might look like for those of us who don't have dyslexia.
1: Okay, so I'm going to try to describe what the image looks like. So imagine you start off with a lowercase b uh, with the long leg of it along the left side like normal, right? But then if... You imagine like a lowercase d kind of superimposed upon the lowercase b. It basically, you know, looks like a circle with two rabbit ears. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, that's right. But um, letters, letters, right?
0: right? Not rabbit ears, <laughs> right? <laughs> and so one can imagine how it'd be difficult to tell what you're looking at, right? If that's what you were seeing. Um, So, while this symmetry is present in all of the eyes of the people with dyslexia who they tested, the, the manifestation of dyslexia can be, evidently, it can be different in different people. And so, for some people, the manifestation of their dyslexia is a mirror image, right, like we're describing here. But for others, the mirror image may be a little bit more complicated. Like, instead of being flipped along the vertical axis, it might be flipped along the horizontal one. Or, the mirror image may appear just somewhere else on the page and not even be connected to the letter itself. So it can get pretty messy, and this may be due to unique distributions of those photoreceptors in that bullseye region, as well as complex interactions between our competing eyes, since one of them isn't playing a dominant role in those who are dyslexic. Despite that diversity of types of dyslexia, the effect they measured was pretty strong.
1: I mean, I can't even imagine how hard it must be for people to learn how to read, you know, if they have severe dyslexia. I mean, even that mirror image form or like, if they see, you know, letters just randomly floating around the page. uh, I mean, it would just be super difficult to learn how to read.
0: Yeah, and I mean, I don't know much about how it is that people learn to read despite dyslexia. And, you know, I'd love to have a conversation with somebody who teaches reading to kids with dyslexia because I bet there are some interesting strategies um, that they can employ. But in any case, beyond just those interesting discoveries, this group also discovered something else that blew my mind. So in some cases, folks with dyslexia would look at a character and just as expected, they'd see the mirror image effect, right? But when the scientists measured how long it took for the mirror image to appear, it took about five to 10 milliseconds of looking at a character.
1: Oh, so it's not immediate.
0: Yeah, that's right. There's a slight delay. So you know, it's 5 to 10 milliseconds is extremely fast, it's barely perceptible, but it's still a window of time in which there might be an opportunity for a therapeutic intervention. And so they explored if they could figure out how they might be able to do just that.
1: Okay, how on earth do you administer some kind of treatment that fast within a 5 to 10 millisecond window?
0: Yeah, I mean, it it turned out that if they flickered the light that they were using to read text at a very, very high frequency, fast enough that you can't even sense that it's flickering, then they were able to make it so that the people with the perfect mirror image version of dyslexia never saw that mirror image.
1: Wow. So basically, if they turn the light on and off super duper quickly... Uh, the people with that certain kind of dyslexia didn't experience the dyslexia at all?
0: That's right, and so at the right frequency of flickering, some of the folks with dyslexia would evidently be able to read without experiencing their symptoms at all at all.
1: That's pretty amazing.
0: I know, right, and, um, and the team is obviously going to continue studying this, but already, I mean, this is a very interesting finding that I'd never seen suggested before.
1: So what do you imagine this treatment would be like in practice?
0: Well, I mean, honestly, I, you know, I don't know how much of a demand there is for improved strategies to teach kids who have dyslexia how to read, but I could imagine kids being tested for dyslexia, and in the event that there's a kid who'd benefit from more attention when learning how to read, I could imagine them going to a special facility that have rooms especially designed for them. In which the lights, you know, above head are flickering at that special frequency, enabling kids to look at pages of characters without having the symptoms of dyslexia interfere with their ability to decipher and learn the various characters, or you know, learn how to manipulate numbers in math.
1: But of course, the kids aren't usually going to be in rooms with lights that flicker at that special frequency. I mean, if they're just outside, you know, just walking around or if those special rooms have windows that allow sunlight to get in, then their symptoms are going to appear again.
0: Yeah, I mean, I would assume so. And, and since I don't know enough about how people manage dyslexia, I don't know how useful a treatment modality like this might be. But regardless, it's a pretty interesting set of discoveries. And perhaps it'll help folks develop resources so that kids with dyslexia have more options available to them, you know, while they're learning how to read and, and manipulate numbers.
1: All right. Well, why don't we conclude it there since we have a football game to go to
0: <laughs> yeah that's right so today is the super bowl which is basically a religious ceremony in the united states so that'll do it for this little neurobite. Uh, thanks again to those who've contributed to the patreon or paypal it's very much appreciated and um uh, once this crazy pros- problem with uh, intel processors is uh resolved um, it'll all be going towards a computer that'll better uh, be able to handle video editing
1: and if you find these conversations interesting, we'd love it if you took a moment to give us a nice little reading on iTunes.
0: Yes, and so until next time, thanks for listening.
1: Thank you.